we are continuing our series going through the book of Proverbs. Uh, this will be, I believe, our uh, fifth week in the book of Proverbs. We have have talked about going through the first couple of chapters. We've talked about how the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom and how we understand who God is actually determines how we understand life. And so that's the basis for how we approach life. And then we've talked about how sin seeks to entice us and lure us away from the path that God has marked out for us. We've talked about how the Lord's wisdom actually gives us blessings. Actually, if we follow God's teaching, we, we have these blessings that help protect us from uh, being led astray or, or going astray and wrecking our lives. And last week we talked about how um, we should trust in the Lord over our own wisdom because we trust that God is in control and we also trust that God is good and loves us and that these two things give us that understanding that we should trust Him over us. And now we're going to actually take a little shift. So far in Proverbs we've been kind of going through chapter by chapter or chunk by chunk, but now if you have read the book of Proverbs or are aware of it, it goes into Proverbs, small little statements that are kind of strung together. And so for the next few weeks as we're continuing through the series, we're going to almost take a more topical approach as we start hitting those topics that uh, God presents in the book of Proverbs and kind of showing God's wisdom for how we live life going through those. And so we're going to hit some topics. And today's topic, we start off with a doozy, one that might make people uncomfortable or might hit you where maybe it's even raw in your life, but we're actually going to hit God's kind of understanding and God's um, provision and God's guidance for how we live our sex life. And so, and we see that in Proverbs chapter 5 that we're going to be hit in a little bit. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Proverbs chapter 5. When we get there, it'll be on the screen as well. Or you can pick up one of the Bibles in the seat in front of you and be on page 497, I believe, if you want a physical copy and you don't have one. But before we dive in, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for this time that we can gather as your people and we can sit underneath your word. That we can know you through what you have communicated and revealed about yourself through your Holy Scripture. Lord, I pray for this time as we open it up that we can truly see you, see your love for us, your guidance for us, and take it into our lives. That we truly can be your people as we seek to honor you and walk in your ways. Lord, I also pray for everyone who is here, everyone who, who calls River Valley home who could not be here this morning, and I pray that we can cling to you no matter what. That when life gets rocky, when circumstances don't go the way we plan, we can cling to you and know you and trust in you. Lord, I just pray for this church that we can be people of your word, that we can be people of your love, that we can be people of your truth, that we seek to make known your glories to everyone we know. I lift up other churches in our, our community and area that we know or might not know who stand on your word or stand and, and proclaim the gospel. I pray for them that they can be encouraged, that they can be a light in their community, that they can draw people to you to see your beauty. I pray for our brothers and sisters across the globe who might be undergoing persecution or in countries that are, is not favorable to Christianity. I pray for their steadfastness, their encouragement, and their protection as we stand confident that your kingdom will expand, that your church will prevail, for even hell trembles as your church advances. Lord, we love you, we seek you, and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German uh, pastor and theologian who actually was killed in World War II by, by Hitler's regime, said this, these, this line. Talking about the cost of Christian discipleship, his understanding of the Christian way of life is, in fact, what the Bible teaches, that when people are called to know who Christ is, it's one of surrender. That when we know who Christ is, we actually give our, our life to him, and we understand he is Lord of our life, and we follow him wherever he leads. If you've grown up in church, or if you've been around this church at all, you know that's what we teach. We teach the fact that when you know who Christ is, you give yourself to Christ. But we have to admit, I have to admit, we don't do this perfectly. All of us will say something along those lines, but we like to put a little asterisk by that mark, and say, yeah, I surrender all, except. And we might go into, I surrender all by my kind of, maybe not my business practices. Because it's kind of going pretty well how it's going, and I don't want God to mess with that. Or we might say, I surrender all but my finances. Because, you know, I like the toys I have, and I like to do what I want to do with what I make. And I surrender all, but I don't want really to talk about money. That's a hot topic issue. I don't want to touch it. There are many areas in which we talk about that, or we may even think about that. We can be honest and admit that to each other. But when we get to the Bible, there's no asterisk or there's no caveat to the call to follow God. And when we start reading the book of Proverbs, we actually see how the book of Proverbs kind of lays out biblical principles, biblical understanding for many of those areas in which we don't want God to lay his hands on. The book of Proverbs actually tells us, no, actually, when we approach God, it should be a full-orbed understanding of who he is, and we live for him no matter what, and so we need biblical guidance on how we live in these different areas of life, even those areas of life in which we don't want God to touch. And as we come to Proverbs chapter 5, we see God, through Solomon, addressing maybe one of the most hot topic issues of our time, which is sexuality, which is our understanding of how humans are made. And we want to put a big asterisk on it because it gets uncomfortable, and we don't want to be out, so out of step with, step with the world, and we don't really want to approach it. But God says, no, when you come to me, all areas of your life are mine. And so we see biblical wisdom for how we live, even how we live out those relationships. So let's dive into Proverbs chapter 5 and see the truth that God would have us understand. Starts off with, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She has not pondered the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honors to others and your ears to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of the foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. 
I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I'm at the brick of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of adulteress? For a man's way are, ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders off his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he's held fast in the cores of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. How would I summarize what we're supposed to take from this passage? And I'll just suggest this. Sexual sin entangles and destroys, but the gospel frees and redeems. When we read this passage, it's really focusing on that first part. The warning against sexual sin, the warning against going astray, the warning of adultery, don't go that way in the results it can have. But we have to read this in light of Christ. As Christians, we read this and know this is true, and we know that this is just half of it, that there's actually hope on the other end in Christ. And so this gives us a firm warning that sexual sin is going to entangle you. It ensnares you in its trap, and it destroys but we also know that's not the end of the story because the gospel can free us and redeem us no matter where we find us in this story or how we interact with this truth of sexual understanding from God. Sexual sin entangles and destroys, but the gospel frees and redeems. You might notice I, 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 I kind of kind of take it bigger than this adultery because I think there's an understanding here that I just have to build up our understanding of how we even approach this text. The first understanding is that we have to approach it actually with a, a biblical sexual ethic. There's a lot of people who have different understandings about what sexuality means, and if you look at our culture, if you look at our times, they'll tell you one thing. It's ever-involving. It seems like it's picking up pace, if I'm honest, of how I feel. And I'm not that old, but it seems like it's picking up pace. So do you guys know that actually Friday night we had an earthquake? Well, in Oklahoma, I was actually awake at 11.25. I'm almost never awake. But I was awake, I was sitting on my couch, and it felt like someone shoved my couch. And I was like, what's that? I didn't think of it, and went to bed. And I woke up, I was like, oh, we had an earthquake. But the ground shifted. And when we come to our understanding of culture's understanding of sexuality or, or how the world talks about this topic, we have to realize if we have been Christians for any length of time, the ground has shifted a whole lot from what once was agreed upon and accepted. And that's the understanding that we have to go back to the Bible as Christians, as Bible-believing people, we go back to the Bible and let the Bible define and give us a standard for how we should operate in relationships as human beings. And so the Bible gives, God gives, a standard for sexual ethics about how humans should approach this topic. And we find that standard right at the beginning. 
When we open up the account in Genesis and the, the creation of humanity, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 and 25, after God saw it was not good that man should be alone, what does he do? He takes a rib from Adam, Adam and makes Eve a woman, and, and man wakens and sees this woman, and then it started in verse 23, it says, And then man said, This is the last bone of my bones, the flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman because she was taken out of man. The words that, God, that man Adam saw when he saw Eve were a love poem. He saw that she was fit and suitable for her, and so he goes, Whoa, man, this is good. This is for me. And it continues, and uh, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and there should become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And this gives us the standard for human sexuality, that man and woman were to be together, and it was good. They were made to complete each other. They were made to complement each other, fit together, and it was good. And they were with each other, and there was no shame in it. It was good. Jesus quotes this passage in Matthew 19, showing that this is his biblical ethic for sex and for marriage. Paul quotes this in Ephesians 5, showing that he too sees this as the foundation and grounding stone for understanding of how we approach this topic. And when you see this, the biblical sexual, sexual ethic is, is understanding that marriage is between a man and a woman together. This is this understanding that sex was designed for that union and no other avenue. That anything outside of that would fall into sexual morality and would be forbidden from what God would say would be good for us. This is the big understanding that there is sexual immorality that Proverbs 5 is talking about adultery, but that's included. But we can pull back and say it's bigger than just adultery. It's really referring to almost any sexual morality we should avoid or beware of getting entangled in that. We see that because when Jesus quotes from Matthew, in Matthew 19, when he quotes from this passage about marriage, he talks about sexual morality. He doesn't just talk about marriage. He talks about how we relate to each other. And that, that term, sexual morality, is porneia, where we get pornography. Pornography is understanding that anything outside the bounds of what God says is good and healthy should be avoided because it brings destruction. Sexual sin entangles and destroys we see that when, when Jesus is talking about even this idea of adultery in Matthew chapter 5, when people come and question him about what is his response, he says, you have heard it said, you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that every, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right hand eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. That Jesus sees this issue when people say, what about adultery? He says it's bigger than that. It's a heart issue that actually Jesus takes it and expands into this whole idea of sexual morality that thoughts of lust are following that same path to destruction. That when, you, when you're really thinking about someone who's not your spouse in an inappropriate way, that's a path to destruction. When you're engaged in pornography, that's a path to destruction as you corrupt what was given by God for good marital union. 
then when you engage in that outside of the marital union, that is wrong. And Jesus says, is there seriousness here? So serious that he says, it's rather you would sacrifice a member of your body if it was dragging you away from God than continue to go on the, that path. There's a serious scenario that we need to recognize that we know how sexual sin can entangle and destroy us, that Jesus says, get rid of anything that could lead you down that path. That's the basis of our understanding of how the Bible, how Jesus, how all the writers of the Bible understood the biblical sexual ethics so that when we come to Proverbs chapter 5, we see the same teaching given to us about how you have to be wary of people leading you astray down these paths. That there's a temptation here. Proverbs chapter 3 describes this temptation as the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. That when you look upon things you're not supposed to look upon, there is a promised pleasure kind of given there. It kind of entices you, lures you away. It drips honey. It seems like it's going to be sweet. It seems like it's going to be good. And you can be enticed and be limited by that and say, yes, I'm going to dive into that. Because there's a promise there given to you that you desire. The speech is smoother than oil, that you can't actually discern it. You can't discern it from truth anymore. You can get confused. Or actually, what I was thinking about when I was looking at that word picture is that you kind of start on that path, and it's easy to listen to. And before you know it, you slipped further and further away from the truth, and you find yourself sliding into ways you didn't expect to go. This is the temptation, not just of adultery from Proverbs 5, but of all sexual sin. That when we look and we see and we're like, oh, that looks good. There's a promised pleasure there that I could take and fulfill it. There's a promise of desire that fulfills a desire that we look at it and then before we know it, we've stepped on a path that is smooth and slick and we find ourselves sliding out of control and we don't know what to do. This is the warning of the temptation that happens when we follow our eyes, our understanding, what looks good rather than what God has laid out for us. There's a promise there. But the writer of Proverbs, Solomon in this case, and when we think about the truth of sexual sin and the whole of it, we see the reality that there's warnings of the consequences. That the end actually is not what is promised. And he goes right into that when he says you're... <clears throat> Uh, but in the end, her, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. Talking about how when you latch on that promise of pleasure, it's going to lead you a place that you don't want to go, and that path is to death, to be separated from God, to follow your own understanding of his, to lead you down some dark ways that are just wandering no longer set on the course that God would have for you. And we see through, through verses like um, you know, 8 through 14, really, this is understanding of the consequences that happen when we fall into temptation, when we give into it, when we forget the fact that sexual sin entangles and destroys. It talks about how 
uh, you don't want to do this. List your honors, go to others, or your years to the merciless. Let strangers take the fill of your strength. And this understanding, this kind of wording is understanding that when you fall into this kind of sin with, with uh, this, this woman here, this warning that, hey, you're going to be in a position that's compromised. And you want to keep it hidden. You don't want people to know it. And so whether it's her or her family or someone else, they find this and leverage you and you actually, actually have to be, you're blackmailed and you have to be, you're going to be exploited to kind of keep it secret. And it's the same with all sin, is that when we fall into sin, whether it's sexual or otherwise, we want to keep it hidden. We want to keep it, we want to keep it quiet. We don't want people to know about it. We don't want to expose it to truth. And so we try to hide it. And because we try to hide it, we're going to be explored by anyone who might find out about it. Or we're going to be explored by itself as we try to keep it hidden. It's going to control us and kind of uh, own us. It's a warning, don't fall in that because it's really practical. You're going to be owned by it. You're going to be owned by people who know about it. Not only that, but it gets really, really practical in voice, uh, voice. In verse 11, when it says, and at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. When you read this, I was like, what's it kind of talking about? You're old and you're going to be degrading decisions? And all, so many commentators are like, no. This is probably the, the, the writer of Proverbs saying, hey, you mess around with a prostitute or adulterous woman, you probably couldn't contract something that's going to take your life and make you groan. That you're going to face actually disease in your life. It's not practical to be with someone like that. That there's dangers in there. And then we see in, in verses 12 through 14 that you actually run, uh, your ruin is kind of displayed for everyone in the community and the assembly. But the truth will actually finally get out, and when it gets out, you're found to be a foolish person who has fallen in ways, and people know it, and they see it, and you can only do, hey, I, I went astray, and now I stand in ruin in front of everyone. And there's consequences when we fall into temptation and traps, when we fall into sin of this nature. It's the same consequence, I would argue, many of the same consequences I argue with almost any sin. And when you fall into that, we try to hide it. But the truth will come out, and people will know how we did not listen to that truth and will be exposed. The interesting thing about Proverbs 5 and this topic is it's so big, actually, it's repeated again and again in the book of Proverbs. Flip to the second half of Proverbs chapter 6, the exact same topic comes up about the warning against adultery. Flip to chapter 7. Same exact warning about adultery. Don't fall into the ways of the adulterous woman. And so you actually can't read Proverbs 5 without going to those others and seeing what they contribute to our understanding about this topic. And so when we go to chapter, uh, chapter 6, I just want to pull your attention to a couple of verses that they talk about this. When he uses this, this analogy, this image, he says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest? and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? This is a practical understanding. Can you mess with stuff that is dangerous and come away unscathed? That sex is not dangerous. Sex is actually designed for a marital union, and in that marital union is good. But when you take that outside of that context, it becomes dangerous and destructive, like a fire. When a fire is in its appropriate place, whether it's the campsite or it's in your hearth, it's a good, good. It keeps the family warm. You cook on it. But when it's taken out of that context, it becomes dangerous and burns. Can a man carry a flame to his chest 
and think to come unscathed? Can you walk across coals? The answer, of course, is no. The consequences with messing things that are wrong is dangerous and damaging. Chapter 7 says the same thing in verses uh, 22 through 23 when he describes it like this. All at once he falls for her as an ox goes to the slaughter or a stag is caught fast till arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he doesn't know that it will cost him his life. Which is another fancy way of saying when you get entangled in sexual sin, it's going to cost you. In this case, it even might cost you your life if it brings you destruction and ruin. There are consequences to falling into the sin. We know that to be true. We have seen it in so many people's lives around us. We know that to be true. We know the danger that is there. And the New Testament speaks of that danger, which is why the, the writer of Proverbs says, hey, listen to my words. Don't let them depart from my mouth. Keep your way far from her, away from her. Talking about the adulterers. Do not go near the door of her house saying, flee from this which matches and parallels Paul's words in 1 Corinthians when he says, flee from all sexual morality. Flee from it. Don't let it even come close to you. You should be on the run. You should be running away from it. Don't get entangled in it. Don't dabble in it. Run away from it. Why? Because you know that you were bought with a price. You know that you're no longer your own. That you shouldn't be dabbling in things that are, uh, are against the ways of God. You actually should be following God's word because you know you are his. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that we should flee from it, run away from it. You should flee from that because there's consequences when we fall from it. And there's an antidote to this temptation. There's an antidote to the allure of sexual morality, of adultery. And it's the, the antidote is the passages that make people blush when they read Proverbs 5. Because the antidote is a correct fulfillment of that sexual relationship, which is with your spouse. That God actually given marriage for a man and a woman to be together and have that correct fulfillment, and they should enjoy it. The, book, uh, the writer of Proverbs in chapter, uh, verses 15 and on talks about that. He uses the imagery of water that you drink from your own cistern, that you should actually you know, go to your own well. It's just talking to you as the image of a life-giving thing, water, and saying, you have a place you can get it. Go and get it there. Don't scatter your water abroad. It makes no sense. It would be wasted. It's stupid to do so, but we, we go towards our own cistern and drink and be fulfilled. And if we didn't know what he was talking about, he just goes and explicitly says it when he says, Rejoice in the wife of youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Side mark, your wife or husband is going to love it when you describe him as a doe, a deer. Works every time. Let her breast fill you at a time of delight, be intoxicated always in her love. Now we can take this, and I've talked about this before, this is a very... Uh, father to his son about women, but this applies across the board to men and women that we take this and we say, hey, no, a husband and a wife, both of them have responsibility to be intoxicated with one another. 
And that is the antidote given by God from being lured astray. To delight in your spouse. Take enjoyment from your spouse. Together, be with each other. One commentator says it like this. Drench yourself until satisfied in a healthy sexual marital relationship. That's the antidote from being lured astray. There's a correct fulfillment in there. We look towards that. Sexual sin entangles and destroys, but the gospel frees and redeems. So we have to look at this through the lens of the gospel. We've seen how the writer of Proverbs makes it very clear what's going to entangle you, how it's going to destroy you, the consequences you're going to find yourself in when you dabble with those things. And, but we have to bring the light of the gospel to this, and we understand this truth that the gospel frees. That if you are seeing they're struggling with the very things that the Briar of Proverbs or Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, and you're struggling with sexual sin, and you're being enticed away, and you don't know where to look, we look to the cross of Christ and realize we're freed. That while we used to be enslaved to sin, while we used to could not be able to fight this, that if you know Jesus Christ, you are freed from that and can look beyond it, and you, can't, you can actually make the decision not to follow along that path. The gospel frees us. If you're a Christian and still struggling with that, because that happens, that's truth. We still struggle with sin that entangles us. If you're a Christian and still struggling and being entangled with the sin, it's a call again to remember how you're free in Christ. It's a call to look past the, the tantalizing, enticing things that might be leading you straight and see the superior beauty in a risen Lord who loves you and has given everything you need for life and godliness, that you look to him and say, strong. The gospel frees us. And the gospel redeems us. If you're sitting on the other side and you read this and you're like, man, this can't be for me because you don't know what's happened in my life. You don't know how far I got off track regarding this area. If that's you, remember how the gospel redeems. So often we think that these hidden sins in our life make us unworthy of God's love or make us somehow not able to be saved or somehow we even doubt that God can love me, what I've done with past relationships or what I'm doing right now, and I just feel the filth, and I don't think God loves me. And to that I say, get over yourself. For when God comes and sends his son to die for us, to live that perfect life we cannot live, to die for us, taking our sins upon himself. When you call upon the name of Christ, all your sins, not even not just the ones you've confessed out loud in front of people, but all your sins, the things that are hidden in your life, are nailed to that cross. He redeems you. He makes you whole. That you cannot be polluted beyond his love or his grace. He pulls you back and redeems you. So when we read this, we know the warning and we take heart the warning, but we also know the truth of the gospel that frees us and redeems us, and now we can walk with confidence in the ways that God has laid out for us. Sexual sin entangles and destroys, but the gospel frees and redeems. But why is this so important? Why would God spend so much time in a book like Proverbs, at least three major sections and many other statements regarding sexual morality, regarding adultery. Why would this be such an important thing? 
There's several reasons we can answer that. One is because of how dangerous it is when you flirt with these things, when you go astray. It damages you quite unlike any other sin. We can see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, about how when you, can, when you do that, it's, it's a sin that's inside your body, not outside your body. We see this as a serious snare. But there's another reason I think that's primary that is that God made marriage and God made sex in marriage for a reason. Yes, for our enjoyment, yes, for our good, yes, to populate the world, but he made it as a story. He made it as a signpost to something greater. He made it as a love story to illustrate the greatest love story there is. We see this in Ephesians chapter 5 when Paul is speaking about this. What he says, he's talking about and quoting from Genesis 2. He says, therefore a man shall leave his mother and his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that refers to Christ and the church. The profound mystery is that God creates marriage and sex as a symbol for the greatest love story there is. That he loves his bride, which is his people. That we see this love story develop, that when we start seeing this language in the prophets about how Israel is God's bride who's gone astray, and he's pursuing her. He's bringing her back from ruin, and he loves her despite everything. And now Paul says, this illustrates the truth of Christ in his church, that he loves us as his bride, and he's bringing us home. And so when you have a good, healthy marriage, it's a great testimony to the world about the true story of God's love towards his church. That's his picture. And so God wants marriage to be kept her holy and pure. Why? Because it points to that greatest story ever, which is his love towards his people. And that when we realize that as encouragement to continue to be true to what God has told us and shown us through his word about what, how we act in those relationships. Sexual sin entangles and destroys, but the gospel frees and redeems. So what should we take from this? How should we, how should we respond to this? I just offer a couple practical suggestions on how we walk this truth out. The first one is that actually we live in light of the fact that God cares how we live. There's a nuance there. It's not like if we live better, God likes us more, or if we live good enough, he's going to accept us. No, we're saved by grace. It's by nothing we've done. He saves us through Jesus Christ, but now he cares on how we live out his life. Dan just talked about that before from 1 Peter, that we're called to be holy like he is holy. We're called to be sober-minded and face life in the right wisdom that he's given us. He cares how we live, and in the, the writer of Proverbs puts this, it, it this way. For a man's ways are, all, uh, ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of his path. That we live as actually God cares. Our ways are before him. There's a way, there's a popular kind of understanding of this uh, in Latin, quorum dio, which means before the face of God. But it's a call for how we live, how we approach life, that we, we actually believe this. That our ways are before the eyes of God and he cares how we live. And so as Christians, not to earn our salvation, not to make him smile, because he, always love, he always lo already loves us more than he possibly could. But now in response to that great love, we live in light of that. We live in light of the gospel and what he's done for us. Which means that when we are tempted, 
when we are enticed to take a decision that turns us away from his way of living, when we're enticed to think lustful thoughts, when we're enticed to maybe interact in a voice that are inappropriate, when we're ready to slide down that trail that is so hard to get off of, we remember that it's a fleeting pleasure that leads to destruction. And we remember what is more beautiful. In a way, that means that we have to, in a way, bounce our eyes. That when things we know can tempt us, we bounce them off of that and focus them again on Christ. The reformer Martin Luther has a great quote about how you can't control the birds flying over your head, but you can stop them from nesting in your beard. What he's saying is you can't control thoughts that scurry across your little animal brain, but you definitely can control what thoughts you take, massage, and feed, and make at home. And so you balance your eyes. You control actually what you think about. You redirect your eyes back to Christ. You focus on that which is from above and not which is from here. You actually focus that, your mind on the things of God, so you're not enticed. Then, if you're married... Enjoy your marriage. I mean, it can't be said enough. That's what the Bible says. If you're married, enjoy it. And if you're not, for whatever reason, know that 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 enjoyment is not as great and not as fulfilling and not as beautiful as the love that Christ has for his people. And you focus on that truth and who he is. Sexual sin entangles and destroys, but the gospel frees and redeems. Join me in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for your word that we can read it, we can understand it, we can grow in it. Lord, I just pray that as your people, we can not be shy about applying your word, applying your truth and the gospel to parts of our life maybe we haven't before. Knowing that even if we haven't, you redeem You bring wholeness. You bring reconciliation. You bring healing to those parts of our life. Lord, I just pray for all of us that we can be your people, seeking to fulfill ourselves in you and the love you have for us, seeking to put our eyes on you, trusting you and your wisdom in the way you have charted out our life and how we should go, that we trust that your ways are better than any other ways. We trust that your truth is the truth, and we can base our whole life on it. Lord, I just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.